0: don't want to be afraid no more. I want to break out and rise up to the skies. I don't want to feel this pain no more. I want to stay up there and close my eyes and let the world dance around me.
1: Good day. That was Bukahara with, their, with his song Afraid No More. <clears throat> good song, good song. What's up? This is day eight of 30 Days of Love by Amy Leo with Intention Inspired. We are just going through the whole 30 days together. And today, day eight, our intention is unashamed. And today we will be nurturing our seeds of self-love by fully embracing who we are at the core and letting go of who we are not. So welcome along this journey. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's just kick it off today with Amy Leo.
2: Welcome to week two of the 30 Days of Love Challenge. I am your guide through this journey. My name is Amy Leo. And this week, we're going to get into some really good stuff. So this week is dedicated to self-love. Today is day eight, and the intention for today is unashamed. And so the Going Deeper section is a bit longer than most of the other sections, but I really invite you to give yourself the time today to really listen to the Going Deeper section. Start to reflect upon your experiences, you know, choose what resonates with you and what doesn't resonate with you from that section. But I really, really encourage you today to take the time to do all of the elements of day eight, which the intention is unashamed, it 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 can really hold some amazing nuggets of insight for you and growth, and and ultimately greater psychological freedom. So let's dive in.
1: Yes, let's dive into living with courageous courageous authenticity. I am unashamed. This is the affirmation for today. So feel free to repeat after me or repeat in your head. I am unashamed. I am willing to be vulnerable and deeply seen for the being that I am. Today I am pulling back the mask and choosing to show up in the world differently without the compulsion to try to numb uncomfortable situations or emotions. I choose to live out loud and with my whole heart even though there is no guarantee that things will work the way I want them to. I am ready to get to know myself again, to get in touch with my authentic spirit, deepest desires, and embodied quirks. I am unashamed. all right let's dive deep you guys ready for the deep dive let's go scuba diving this is get your snorkels out (laughs) this is the deep dive for unashamed with amy um it's about 19 minutes long but there's some good juice real good juice so um get cozy grab that mug um and let's let's dive in together here we are with amy
2: when you think of an epidemic What comes to mind? Addiction? Violence? Depression? Divorce? Yet, what if there was a common denominator underneath all of these social epidemics? A core cause we can only label as shame. Shame is a painful feeling of humiliation and distress caused by the labeling of wrong or foolish behavior. It goes beyond guilt, for guilt entails feeling bad about something. Shame implies we are bad. Can you see the difference? Shame is something that is inflicted upon ourselves by ourselves. It's also something that is inflicted upon us by others and something we inflict upon them. It is highly correlated with addiction, unhappiness, mental illness, and relationship breakdowns. Shame is an intensely painful notion that we are not worthy of love and that we do not belong. Reflect on this for a moment. How many times in your life have you heard phrases like, Stop that. Put that down. Stop crying. There's no reason for you to be upset. You should be ashamed of yourself. I told you so. What will your father think? You drive me crazy. Be quiet. Because I said so. Shame on you. I can't believe you did that. You do that just to hurt me. As you got older, this likely turned into an internal dialogue that sounded a bit more like this. Won't I ever learn? I shouldn't feel like this. I should know better. That was dumb. What is wrong with me? She or he was right to leave. I guess I'm destined to be alone. People don't understand me. I'm just too much to handle. I can't be myself. I don't have any time for myself. They don't even know the real me. The Western socialization process, which includes things like exposure to media and advertisements, books, movies, parenting, and schooling, has really led us to internalize some basic operating rules for social survival in the quote-unquote real world. See if any of these, when you dig deep, are familiar to how you have behaved in the world. Number one, avoid showing too much emotion, especially negative emotions such as anger, especially if you're a woman, or sadness, especially if you're a man. Think about how many looks a mother gets on an airplane or at the grocery store when her child is just expressing one of these natural human emotions. Number two, don't stick out too much. Don't be too different. Being true to what you really want to do with your life or how you really feel is impractical in the real world. Don't admit you are uncertain about something, especially if you are a leader, parent, counselor, or teacher. Number four, Pain and quote-unquote negative feelings are bad. We should pursue a 24-7 state of happiness. If we aren't happier in love, it's our own fault and something is definitely wrong. We should work on ourselves. We should follow the advice of others. We should find a good job, the perfect husband or wife, and settle down. Anything less than working on ourselves or running around in circles in a constant haze of productivity means that we're irresponsible members of society. I'd like to take a moment and ask you to really see if any one of those kind of basic assumptions has shown up in your life. Can you recognize a time when one of these did occur? Perhaps all of them have occurred in your life at some point or another. The thing with these operating rules is that, you know, they're unspoken. They're learned. They fly under the radar. But that has prompted many of us to make behavioral adaptions where we're really critical of ourselves. We think that being critical of ourselves or others is the only way to improve and reach a better quality of living. So we learn to be on the lookout for flaws within ourselves and work hard to fix them. After all, the assumption is only then can we be happy, worthy, and lovable. As a child, you quickly saw the link between a behavior that mommy and daddy didn't like and those that they approved of. As young children, many of us then tended to stop listening to ourselves and start acting in accordance with what the adults in our lives desired. As an adult... This fear of disapproval persists as we try to catch our own flaws and fix them before other people notice, putting ourselves down before others get the chance to. We've also learned to link our intrinsic value with extraneous things like work ethic, physical appearance, talents, financial prowess, and other outside accomplishments like job titles. So, the bottom line message, what I've really seen get in the way of self love, is that we do think we're not okay as we are. We think we need to act a particular way in public. When we were younger, we thought we needed a certain toy in order to be fulfilled and happy. As we became teenagers, for the ladies, especially, you know, we had to get that hot new lipstick or that brand of clothes. And as we got older, we strove to get good grades and graduate from college, get a job, buy this house, acquire this car, marry that person, etc. ad nauseum in order to be fulfilled, secured, and happy in life, in order to feel enough in order to be unashamed, in order to feel like a productive member of society and of our families. But this challenge is going to operate on a completely different notion that there's nothing wrong with you. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't learn or improve skills that you have, like playing the piano, but skill acquisition is different than believing you need to improve the character and core of who you are. That who you are at a fundamental level is not enough. So this challenge is really going to encourage you to experience a space in which you're deeply listened to and you deeply listen to others. So that all of us can come up with our own answers And in doing so, learn to trust ourselves and our inner wisdom first. Again, this doesn't mean that you don't listen to the advice of loved ones, but tapping into your own internal GPS system as the primary navigation mode is a different way of experiencing life than always seeking permission or approval from other people in order to do things in your heart you know you want to do. Another experience that we're going to create is to love, appreciate, and accept ourselves for who we are in the moment. Whatever that looks like, that may not look or feel pretty, but as we get more comfortable with being uncomfortable, new realities open up, new experiences, new possibilities for being human and experiencing love on a new level occur. And the third thing is we're going to learn from but not get bogged down by behavior. So we're going to start looking beyond behavior and acknowledge the psychological innocence that may exist there. We're going to play around with the notion that any person, you, me, your loved ones, strangers on the street, can only take action from the level of thinking that that person has in a moment. We can only act from what our reality looks like, from what we think our options are and and that has typically been an area of shame and of judgment for many people that other people expect you to think or do something because it's what they think and what they would do but that formula makes no sense it doesn't work like that behavior is an interpretation that's given meaning by the observer so <laughs> even though behavior, crying, laughing, yelling is observable, why someone really engages in that activity, what it means to them, and what motivates them is not observable. So to put our own agenda and judgment on that doesn't make sense. So how is this practical? How is seeing beyond behavior and social acceptance going to be helpful for you? Well, for one, it's likely a healthier place to be. So let's give some real world examples about this. I was at a personal development conference. It was one of these sessions in New York City where we were in the session from 8 a.m. in the morning till 10 p.m. at night, and that was all weekend. So this was the third day, and we had been sitting for you you can tell tens of hours at this point. And so I sat down on the floor to stretch my legs and, and my back a little bit. And the instructor, someone that, you know, was a well-meaning individual, someone who kind of claimed to understand thought and, and perception it immediately told me to sit in my chair, right? So this is an example that's, it's so harmless, (laughs) you know, whether you're sitting in a chair or sitting on the floor. And yet we have an idea about that, about what's appropriate, about what is approved of behavior sitting in a chair and what is kind of shameful behavior or foolish behavior or, you know, going against the norm. and. And in fact, of course, my body was trying to tell me, you know, you need to stretch, girl, stretch those legs. But again, we, we hold ourselves back from living moment to moment from our wisdom, from a, a place of optimal health because we fall into formation with these rules around us. Another example is actually today I found myself quite hungry. <laughs> And so I went to a fresh food bar next to my house and I realized that they closed at five o'clock and I was ordering, it was about 4.40. And and so I ordered it in and I rushed through the entire meal almost to the point of feeling sick. I was eating so fast, right? And And no one in that establishment said anything to me about having to hurry up. It was an assumption I made because, oh no, these people have have got to close up shop and get home to their families, and it's so rude of me if I'm just sitting here eating and enjoying the food that they're offering. so in your life, it might be a different example. it may be an example more in alignment with your sense of mental well-being and purpose. You know how, how many things have you wanted to try but you've been afraid to do because of a social reaction, like public speaking or singing in public. Or, you know, in the realm of love and relationships, how many times have you stopped yourself from going up to someone that you thought was attractive because you didn't want to make a fool of yourself? You didn't want to feel the shame of that, the embarrassment. But by not going up to someone or speaking to them, you have no idea what could be possible. We're shutting ourselves off before we give ourselves an experience of it. And for other people, it may be that they are getting married because their family is, is requiring that is is, there's really an expectation that at a certain age, you know, the thing to do is get married. And so they've gotten married or will get married again, all because of external drivers, all of, because of this link that's been created between behavior and inner worth as a person, right? If my behavior is accepted by my loved ones, by my community, by my culture, then I'm okay, then I'm accepted. And behavior and inner well being and inner acceptance, an inner sense of love, they're not related. And in fact, the more that we listen to ourselves when it comes to what to eat, how to stand or sit in a conference, right? It's as small as that. Inner wisdom is <laughs> it, it's not this grand uh, light bulb moment every time. It's tuning into that inner guidance that's so subtle and yet so impactful. When some people hear this, they're so accustomed to thinking about behavior in regards to shame that they automatically draw Extreme conclusions. Like, well, we have to have some accountability for our actions, or else, you know, people will just go around hurting each other and murdering each other and abusing each other. Well, that that happens already. Right? I, I'm not saying that it, that <laughs> we should always, you know, fly by the impulses that we have and and have no respect or awareness of other people, right? We talked about that last week on day two. So if that thought's going through your mind, you know, I invite you to to, to take another listen. Listen to this from a different perspective. Listen to this from, from the more practical point of view, which involves kind of micro actions in your own life that will bring about a greater sense of authenticity and self-love. Most likely someone's loving authentic self is not the part that's going to go out and want to harm other people. How is seeing beyond behavior and social expectation and the need for social acceptance going to be helpful to you in your life? What things haven't you been doing because of the social expectation of others around you? For some people, this is a career path that they have not followed because it's too avant-garde. It's too um, abnormal in their social circles for people to pursue this. It's not common. For other people, this may look like uh, marrying someone that they don't really necessarily want to marry, even though it doesn't really align with their authenticity, their sense of purpose and wisdom. And for others, they prevent themselves from the possibility of a new romantic relationship all the time. How many times have you been out in the world and found someone interesting or attractive, and yet you've held yourself back. You haven't spoken with them, or you, you haven't asked for the number, or you know, put yourself out there to make the next step and make that connection. Again, this is an example of behavior and how behavior is not correlated at all to who we fundamentally are to our sense of self-love, to our inner wisdom and unique pathway. There's a real faulty cause and effect that has been set up based on behavior, based on our interactions with one another. So we're going to continue to dive into that for the next week. So I want to leave you with this for today. Consider that the process of feeling shame, of being critical of yourself, is actually not helping you get anywhere. It's not a prerequisite for personal growth. It's not an admirable quality. It's not proof of how responsible you are or how much integrity that you have. And scientific research and countless case studies are really exposing that for what it is. They're pointing to the notion that the process of shame and self-hate is actually a rat race which only breeds more shame and self-hate.
1: Wow. Great deep dive, Amy. A lot of information there. That is beautiful. So a mantra for today to kind of hold onto whatever came up for you. Maybe you can come back to this mantra and repeat it and continue to surface new things based on today's intention. Ah, The mantra goes, I am ready to see and be seen deeply for who I really am. So let's repeat that three times together. I am ready to see and be seen deeply for who I really am. I am ready to be seen and to, I am ready to see and be seen deeply for who I really am. I am ready to see and be seen deeply for who I really am. All right, so we got a little micro challenge for today, which is to watch a TED Talk by Brene Brown, if you guys haven't seen it yet. Um, And if you have, dare to watch it again and see what you hear this time. This TED Talk by Brene um, is one of the most popular TED Talks of all time. So we're gonna go ahead and, and give it a listen. So here you go.
3: So I'll start with this. A couple of years ago, an event planner called me because I was going to do a speaking event. And she called and she said, I'm really struggling with how to write about you on the little flyer. And I thought, well, what's the struggle? And she said, well, I saw you speak and I, 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 I'm going to call you a researcher, I think, but I'm afraid if I call you a researcher, no one will come because they'll think you're boring and irrelevant. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And she said, so but the thing I liked about your talk is, you know, you're a storyteller, so I think what I'll do is just call you a storyteller. And, of course, the academic, insecure part of me was like, you're going to call me a what? And she said, I'm going to call you a storyteller. And I was like, oh, why not Magic Pixie? Um, I was like, I, I don't I, – I, let me think about this for a second. And so I tried to call deep on my courage, and I thought – you know, I am a storyteller. I'm a qualitative researcher. I collect stories, that's what I do. And maybe stories are just data with a soul, you know? And maybe I'm just a storyteller. So I said, you know what? Why don't you just say I'm a researcher storyteller? And she went, there's no such thing. (laughs) So I'm a researcher storyteller. Um, And I'm going to talk to you today, we're talking about expanding perception, and so I want to talk to you and tell some stories about a piece of my research that fundamentally expanded my perception um, and really actually changed the way that I live and love and work and parent. Um, And this is where my story starts. When I was a young researcher, doctoral student, my first year I had a research professor who said to us, here's the thing, if you cannot measure it, it does not exist. And I thought he was just sweet-talking me. I was like, really? And he's like, absolutely. So you have to understand that I have a bachelor's in social work, a master's in social work, and I was getting my PhD in social work. So my entire academic career was surrounded by people who kind of believed in the life's messy, love it, you know, and I'm more the life's messy, clean it up, (laughs) organize it, and put it into a bento box. And so to think that I had found my way to found a career that takes me, you know, really one of the big sayings in, in social work is lean into the discomfort of the work. And I'm like, you know, knock discomfort upside the head and move it over and get all A's. That's my, that was my mantra. So I was very excited about this. And so I thought, you know what? This is the career for me because I am interested in some messy topics, but I want to be able to make them not messy. I want to understand them. I want to hack into these things that I know are important and lay the code out for everyone to see. So where I started was with connection because by the time you're a social worker for 10 years, what you realize is that connection is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. This is, this is what it's all about. It doesn't matter whether you talk to people who work in social justice and mental health and abuse and neglect. What we know is that connection, the ability to feel connected, is neurobiologically, that's how we're wired, it's why we're here. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to start with connection. Well, you know that that situation where you get an evaluation from your boss And she tells you 37 things that you do really awesome, and one thing that you can't, you know, an opportunity for growth. (laughs) Um, And all you can think about is that opportunity for growth, right? Well, apparently, this is the way my work went as well, because when you ask people about love, they tell you about heartbreak. When you ask people about belonging, they'll tell you their most excruciating experiences of being excluded, and when you ask people about connection, the stories they told me were about disconnection. So very quickly, really about six weeks into this research, I ran into this unnamed thing that absolutely unraveled connection in a way that I didn't understand or had never seen, and so I pulled back out of the research and thought, I need to figure out what this is, and it turned out to be shame. And shame is really easily understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it that I won't be worthy of connection? The things I can tell you about it, it's universal. We all have it. The only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection. No one wants to talk about it, and the less you talk about it, the more you have it. What underpinned this shame, this I'm not good enough, which we all know that feeling, I'm not blank enough, I'm not thin enough, rich enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, promoted enough. Um, The thing that underpinned this was excruciating vulnerability. This idea of in order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. And you know how I feel about vulnerability. I hate vulnerability. And so I thought, this is my chance to beat it back with my measuring stick. I'm going in, I'm going to figure this stuff out, I'm going to spend a year, I'm going to totally deconstruct shame, I'm going to understand how vulnerability works, and I'm going to outsmart it. So I was ready, and I was really excited. As you know, it's not going to turn out well. Um, (laughs) You know this. So I could tell you a lot about shame, but I'd have to borrow everyone else's time. But here's what I can tell you that it boils down to. And this may be one of the most important things that I've ever learned in the decade of doing this research. My one year has turned into six years. Thousands of stories, hundreds of long interviews, focus groups, at one point people were sending me journal pages and sending me their stories, um, thousands of pieces of data Um, in six years, and I kind of got a handle on it. I kind of understood this is what shame is, this is how it works. I wrote a book, I published a theory, but something was not okay. Um, And what it was is that if I roughly took the people I interviewed and divided them into people who really have a sense of worthiness, that's what this comes down to, a sense of worthiness, They have a strong sense of love and belonging, and folks who struggle for it, and folks who are always wondering if they're good enough. There was only one variable that separated the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging and the people who really struggle for it. And that was the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they're worthy of love and belonging. That's it. They believe they're worthy. And to me, the hard part of the one thing that keeps us out of connection is our fear that we're not worthy of connection, was something that personally and professionally I felt like I needed to understand better. So what I did is I took all of the interviews where I saw worthiness, where I saw people living that way, and just looked at those. What do these people have in common? And I have—I have a slight office supply addiction, but that's another talk. Um, so I had a Manila notebook, a Manila folder, and I had a sharpie, and I was like, "What am I going to call this research?" And the first words that came to my mind were "wholehearted." These are kind of wholehearted people living from this deep sense of worthiness. So I wrote at the top of the Manila folder, and I started looking at the data. In fact, I did it first in this very four, in a four-day very intensive data analysis where I went back, pulled these interviews, pulled the stories, pulled the incidents. What's the, what's the theme, what's the pattern? My husband left town with the kids um, <laughs> because I always go into this kind of Jackson Pollock crazy thing where I'm just like writing and, and going and kind of just in my researcher mode. And so here's what I found. What they had in common was a sense of courage. And I want to separate courage and bravery for you for a minute. Courage, the original definition of courage, when it first came into the English language, it's from the Latin word cur, meaning heart. And the original definition was to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. And so these folks had very simply the courage to be imperfect, they had the compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others, because as it turns out, we can't practice compassion with other people if we can't treat ourselves kindly. And the last was they had connection, and this was the hard part, as a result of authenticity. They were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were, which is you have to absolutely do that for connection. The other thing that they had in common was this. They fully embraced vulnerability. They believed that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. They didn't talk about vulnerability being comfortable, nor did they really talk about it being excruciating, as I had heard earlier in the shame interviewing. They just talked about it being necessary. They talked about the willingness to say I love you first. The willingness to do something where there are no guarantees. The willingness to breathe through waiting for the doctor to call after your mammogram the willing to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. They thought this was fundamental. I personally thought it was betrayal. Um, I could not believe I had pledged allegiance to research. Where our job, you know, the definition of research is to control, control and predict, to study phenomenon for the reason for the ex- explicit reason to control and predict. And now my very You know, my mission to control and predict had turned up the answer that the way to live is with vulnerability and to stop controlling and predicting. This led to a little breakdown, (laughs) which actually looked more like this, Um, and it did. It led to a, I call it a breakdown, my therapist calls it a spiritual awakening. Spiritual awakening sounds better than breakdown, but I assure you, it was a breakdown. And I had to put my data away and go find a therapist. Let me tell you something. You know who you are when you call your friends and say, I think I need to see somebody who, do you have any recommendations? Because about five of my friends are like, whoo, I wouldn't want to be your therapist. Um, (laughs) And I was like, what does that mean? And they're like, I'm just saying, you know, like... (laughs) don't bring your measuring stick. Uh, Okay. So I found a therapist. My first meeting with her, Diana, I brought in my list of the way the wholehearted live. And I sat down and she said, you know, how are you? And I said, I'm great. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. And she said, what's going on? And I said, and this is a therapist who sees therapists because we have to go to those because their B.S. meters are good. Um, (laughs) And so I said, here's the thing, I'm struggling. And she said, what's the struggle? And I said, well, I have a vulnerability issue, and, and I know that vulnerability is kind of the core of shame and fear and our struggle for worthiness, but it appears that it's also the birthplace of joy, of creativity, of belonging, of love, and I I think I have a problem. And I just, I need some help. And I said, but here's the thing. No family stuff, no childhood shit. I just, (laughs) I just need some strategies. (laughs) Thank you. So she goes like this. (laughs) And then I said, it's bad, right? And and she said, it's neither good nor bad. (laughs) It just is what it is. And I said, oh my God, this is gonna suck. Um, And it did and it didn't. Um, And it took about a year. And you know how there are people that like, when they realize that vulnerability and tenderness are important, that they kind of surrender and walk into it. A, that's not me. And B, I don't even hang out with people like that. Uh, For me, it was a year-long street fight. It was a slugfest. Vulnerability pushed, I pushed back. I lost um, the fight, but probably won my life back. And so then I went back into the research and spent the next couple of years really trying to understand what they, the wholehearted, um, what the choices they were making, and, and what, what, is, what, what are we doing with vulnerability? Why do we struggle with it so much? Am I alone in struggling with vulnerability? No. So this is what I learned. We numb vulnerability. When we're waiting for the call, it was funny. I sent something out on Twitter and on Facebook that says, how would you define vulnerability? What makes you feel vulnerable? And within an hour and a half, I had 150 responses Um, because I wanted to know, you know, what's out there. Having to ask my husband for help because I'm sick and we're newly married. Um, Initiating sex with my husband. Initiating sex with my wife. Being turned down. Asking someone out. Waiting for the doctor to call back getting laid off, laying off people. This is the world we live in. We live in a vulnerable world. Um, And one of the ways we deal with it is we numb vulnerability. And I think there's evidence, and it's not the only reason this evidence exists, but I think that it's a, a, a huge cause. We are the most in debt, obese, addicted, and medicated adult cohort in US history. The problem is, and I learned this from the research, that you cannot selectively numb emotion. You can't say, here's the bad stuff. Here's vulnerability. Here's grief. Here's shame. Here's fear. Here's disappointment. I don't want to feel these. I'm going to have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to feel these. And I know, that's, I know that's knowing laughter. I, I hack into your lives for a living. I know that's, oh, God. God. Um, you can't numb those hard feelings without numbing the other affects or emotions. You cannot selectively numb. So when we numb those, we numb joy. We numb gratitude. We numb happiness. And then we are... Miserable and we are looking for purpose and meaning and then we feel vulnerable So then we have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin (laughs) and it becomes this dangerous cycle Um, One of the things that I think that we need to think about is why and how we numb and it doesn't just have to be addiction The other thing we do is we make everything that's uncertain certain Religion has gone from a belief in faith and mystery to certainty. I'm right, you're wrong, shut up. That's it, just certain. The more afraid we are, the more vulnerable we are, the more afraid we are. This is what politics looks like today. There's no discourse anymore. There's no conversation. There's just blame. You know, what blame, you know how blame is described in the research? A way to discharge pain and discomfort. We perfect, if there's anyone who wants their life to look like this, it would be me. But it doesn't work because what we do is we take fat from our butts and put it in our cheeks, which just, I hope in hundred years, people will look back and go, wow. You know? um, and we perfect most dangerously our children. Let me tell you what we think about children. They're hardwired for struggle when they get here. When you hold those perfect little babies in your hand, our job is not to say, look at her, she's perfect. My job is just to keep her perfect, make sure she makes a tennis team by fifth grade and Yale by seventh grade. (laughs) That's not our job. Our job is to look and say, you know what? You're imperfect and you're wired for struggle, but you are worthy of love and belonging. That's our job. Show me a generation of kids raised like that and we'll end the problems I think that we see today. We pretend that what we do doesn't have an effect on people. We do that in our personal lives. We do that corporate, whether it's a bailout, an oil spill, a recall. We pretend like what we're doing doesn't have a huge impact on other people. I would say to companies, this is not our first rodeo, people. We just need you to be authentic and real and say, we're sorry, we'll fix it. But there's another way, and I'll leave you with this. This is what I have found. To let ourselves be seen, deeply seen, vulnerably seen. To love with our whole hearts, even though there's no guarantee. And that's really hard, and I can tell you as a parent, that's excruciatingly difficult. To practice gratitude and joy in those moments of kind of terror when we're wondering, Can I love you this much? Can I believe in this as passionately? Can I be this fierce about this? Just to be able to stop and instead of catastrophizing what might happen to say, I'm just so grateful because to feel this vulnerable means I'm alive. And the last, which I think is probably the most important, is to believe that we're enough. Because when we work from a place, I believe, that says, I'm enough, then we stop screaming and start listening. We're kinder and gentler to the people around us, and we're kinder and gentler to ourselves. That's all I have.
1: (laughs) Whew, Brene, thank you. Dropping it down with the vulnerability, with the courage, with the enoughness, unconditional love. Mm -hmm. We're all human, going through it all together ups and downs and all around and all the way through it. Uh, feeling the love. So today's science study to back it all up on our intention of unashamed comes from um, psychological today. The hazards of self-criticism also comes from um, another study from psychological um, psychiatry, psychodynamic psychiatry in the report, criticism in the self-brain relationships and social structure. And then lastly, from Brene Brown's TED Talk, The Power of Vulnerability, all share that self-criticism can cause depression, anxiety, eating or disorders, substance abuse, physical health problems, criminal behavior and even suicidal ideation. Conversely, vulnerability is the core of shame and fear and our struggle for worthiness, but it appears that it is also the birthplace of joy, creativity, of belonging, and of love. Today's quote is by Sherry Huber, who said, you have been taught there is something wrong with you and that you are imperfect, but there isn't and you're not. All right, let's dive into our journal prompt for today. If you have your journal nearby, go ahead and whip that out and start to bring to mind... What happens and how you feel when you're self-critical? How do you feel and what happens when you are self-critical? And a question to prompt some jots is to ask yourself, how can I treat myself in a way that would be more beneficial? So what happens? What do you do? How do you feel when you're self-critical and what can you do yourself? How can you treat yourself in a way that would be more beneficial? Go ahead ahead and hit pause if you'd like to jot around on that and uh, give yourself a moment to reflect. All right, I did a a quick little jot, jit jot, be happy to share. Um, When I'm self-critical, I retract. Everything kind of tenses up, go in, shy away from, breath shallows, My light dims is what it is. How beautiful that my body speaks up to let me know that there is something limiting my capacity to feel and be seen. Noticing for me is half the battle. And then beyond noticing, in that sacred pause, accepting and gently inquiring further what is creating the habitual criticism. Is there a story here I can let go of? Hmm. possible Okey Okie doke. That was a journey guys. I'm unashamed. What is good? That is good. And we're just gonna, a, a quick farewell here from Amy before we wrap it all up for the day. So here's Amy.
2: Well, that's all that we have for today. There may have been pieces of that going deeper section that really resonated with you and others that didn't. That's fine. Take what resonates and leave the rest. But again, you know, get curious yourself. Start kind of questioning these things that we take for granted that we know based on how we were raised and see what's there for you. Only you know what's there and the possibilities are really infinite in this kind of inquiry. So I look forward to seeing you again tomorrow. We're gonna continue in the direction of self-love. Until next time, stay curious, take care of yourself, and keep rocking.
1: Thank you, Amy. What a great, what a great day. I am unashamed. Thank you for joining me. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through with your journey of love. Beautiful stuff. Wow. Shining a light on that intention of love. It's good, good, good. What it is. All right. That was day eight. Tomorrow is day nine. I am enough is our intention for tomorrow. Falls up beautifully with today's intention of unashamed. Mm-mm-mm. So I'm going to leave you with this song, Afraid No More by Hara. It's a good one. It just so happens to be three minutes and 33 seconds long. Something about that number. Okie doke. Enjoy the day, guys. Enjoy the song. Enjoy the intention of feeling unashamed for the day. Enjoy. I
0: was born old in the world as young as a growing child. Everybody's seeking something and I don't know where to hide I was born calm in the world, as loud as a crowded street Every time I go out there, oh, it carries me off my feet And I was born dark in the world, as white as my neighbor's wall All the time I've been waiting for a ship to take me home In a world that always keeps on changing If you don't go along for a while One day you'll become a stranger And I was born bold in a world That's told between the lines So I write till I'm finally free From a story that's not mine Around me, I don't want to be afraid no more. I want to break out.